how can we use Y in a way that works for us? And we literally will say to people, there are a lot of competitors out here that could teach you. You know, Harvard could teach you negotiation. You can learn negotiation from Wharton. Karras is out there. There are no shortage of credible competitors for negotiation knowledge. Why would you ever come to the Black Swan Group? We ask that question all the time. Before the book came out, we'd be standing up in front of a group and I'd say, guys, why listen to a hostage negotiator? And what happens? What do you think happens? Why would you listen to a hostage negotiator? Why would you? Because your skills have to work. Your skills have to work is what he said. Here's what happens on the people that haven't made up their mind yet. They tell you which part of your value proposition appeals to them. I could say, you should listen to a hostage negotiator because my skills have to work. Or I can look at you and say, why would you do this? And you say the same thing. Now, when does it matter more to you? When you say it. And I begin to understand what aspect. Now, if, if I, he's a potential client, I say, why would you ever listen to a hostage negotiator? And he says to me, because your skills have to work. Now I use that to continually frame my value proposition because I know that's an element of my value proposition and those are the words that speak to him. And if their mind is 80% made up ahead of time, you have to diagnose what aspects of what you bring to the table matter to them. Because more than likely, every single one of you have anywhere from 10 to 20 reasons why people should do business with you. And if you start out on stuff that doesn't matter to me, how long before I tune you out? Five seconds is a pretty accurate guess. It's roughly three to 10 seconds. Some data says seven seconds. But you're going to blow five, seven, ten seconds on the wrong issue, and I'm going to tune you out. I mean, and there's no shortage. I don't know how many of you have been in pitch presentations and have pitch presentations or have, have product presentations. People hate having a CEO in a room because they're like, damn, CEO's going to interrupt, start asking questions before I can get all the way through my presentation. Well, actually, what does that tell you? It tells you, number one, that he didn't care about everything you said up to that point in time, and what he interrupted John was what he really cared about. Right? But, and we see this in industry after industry after industry. I worked hard on that presentation. I want them to sit there for two hours while I give the whole thing. That, that's when people are really happy, when they get a chance to get through their whole proposal. And then, and ideally, they don't get any hard questions and they roll out of there happy as hell. Right? And then what happens? No sale, no sale right? Would a why question sound accusatory even if used with a right tone of voice? The question why, if you have kids, grandkids, or as you went through life and somebody said something to you, you always ask why. Why? 
My grandkids do it all the time. If I say you can't have something, why? Why? And when you get the why so many times, it's, it's always like you're questioning or you're questioning somebody. You're making them not even want to answer. When we talk about why, we use it sparingly for the purpose of proof of life. You know, out of all the people you could deal with today, why did you come on to this, this fireside chat with me? So we're asking it in a way to get, get you to tell us what you're thinking, what your thoughts are. You're selling us. You're selling me. I want to talk about some of your open-ended questions. I think these are really powerful. So the, the way that why questions are accusatory, mm -hmm. but how questions invite people to do the thinking for you and explain that, like the, explain the power of how. Yeah, it, well, it, uh, to use common, Kahneman's phraseology, it triggers slow thinking or in-depth thinking. You know, because it's logistical. Uh, yeah. You know how how largely is implementation or logistical? Is another, uh, uh, how's this going to get done? Um, it feels deferential. So I'm going to kill these motherfuckers if you don't give me twenty million dollars right now. And you say, "How am I supposed to do that?" Go to the bank. Call the president. Do whatever you need to do. This is somebody's life. Give me the twenty million right now. How am I supposed to do that right now? You want me to call the president? You want me to go to the bank? Do they not just keep How screaming? Am I to yes, do that that's right exactly what I want you to do. All they got to do is come down a little at a time. Now I'm not resisting. I'm in implementation, and it triggers in-depth thinking. And in point of fact, those are legitimate questions. You know, the, the, ask a question that the, whether the other side likes it or not is actually a legitimate question. Not resisting. I'm asking in a way where I'm deferential. I'm not saying I ain't doing it. I'm asking for your help. Now, how you respond to that is going to tell me where this is really going. You know, there's 93% success rate means 7% of the time it ain't going to go anywhere. This is nothing but bad. I got to know which one I'm dealing with. And so, you know, my how and what questions early on and occasional, the, the strategical use of why, surgical use of why, I got to diagnose what I'm really dealing with. And I got to do it in a way where you're not feeling like you're being diagnosed. But, you know, because I, I got to do everything I can do to avoid triggering you, but I got I to I gotta get a diagnostic on what I'm actually dealing with to begin with. And how do you handle telling people no in a way that doesn't shut them down? Yeah, you know, uh, a friend of mine here in town, Ned Coletti, used to be the GM for the Dodgers. Brilliant negotiator. Good guy. Like him a lot. Ned is still around. I'm still affiliated with the Dodgers. First year he was uh, GM, they went from worst to first. That's a sign of a capable GM. Okay. You know, and, and we were talking about this one time, and Ned said that someone had taught him to let out no a little at a time. And I'm like, that's exactly what we're doing. Like, you have to be able to say no to people. 
what your job is to not let them get blindsided by it, where they feel like they were clotheslined and caught off guard. So you let it out a little at a time. And how am I supposed to do that is really a way to get the other side thinking about the difficulty of the situation, about the difficulty of the ask. And it's the first way to start letting know. Why can't you just say that's really going to be hard? Further down the line, we're going to get there. But first, I really kind of need the how question is designed to get stop you in your your tracks and get you thinking. It's calibrated, which is why we call them calibrated questions, to start to trigger a state change in the other side. Now, we got to let out a little more no and a little firmer way as we go along. Then we got we, we got a whole succession of ways to eventually, ultimately, if forced into it, to say no. Which then also is not no. It's no. But we don't need to go. Like if if you hear no from me or my side, we've been hinting at it for a while. So you're not going to be feel blindsided. You're gonna, yeah, and we're gonna continue to demonstrate collaboration, because I, you know, I don't want to go all the way to now. If we're talking, there's a reason for us to talk. The adversary is the situation. So if there's a reason for us to collaborate and talk, where we can both be better off, I also don't want to let out no too quickly because there might be a better way, and I want to discover that. So let's let me let me let me start telegraphing that there are problems here, inviting collaboration. See if we can tease out a solution before the thing goes down the tubes. Have you ever had a negotiator or a um, hostage taker give you an answer to something that you were like, I actually don't have a rebuttal to that. We should try that. <laughs> Not yet. Yeah, I was, I, I'm running these scenarios through my head and I'm like, what would I do if they like offered a suggestion? I'm like, yeah, like actually sounds, maybe we should try that. <laughs> like, how do you, because there are scenarios where you end up paying apparently $20 million. Well, we, well first of all, it wasn't a U.S. that paid that or anybody on the U.S. side. So the U.S. would never do that? Uh, correct. US, the U.S. does not pay ransom. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be bait money go downrange. Meaning because, you give them money that you know you're going to take back? Or you're going to trace. Like, like money is ridiculously easy to trace. Like ridiculously easy. And it can be a very smart move. It's like eject, injecting dye into their financial circulatory system. Mm. Where are they buying weapons? Who are they paying safe houses for? They got a larger criminal network. Terrorists are not supported by the Red Cross. They're supported by a larger criminal network of illegal arms dealers and illegal this and illegal that. And you want to know who they're buying their guns from. And the best way to find out who they're buying their guns from is to give them some money that you could trace and find out where it goes. Follow the money, as they said a long time ago in, in the Watergate scandal. That's a tremendous investigative tool. And if you, uh, there was a, uh, in 2000, that was exactly what happened because there was a criminal gang out of Ecuador that had been taking hostages on oil platforms every year at about October. And they were a combination of former terrorists and criminals. And so the third time it went down, a payment was made because if they would assaulted the the oil platform, they'd only got the kidnappers who were the low end of the food chain. 
but they made a payment and they ended up dismantling the gang in its entirety and they never hit again. Oh. Over 50 people were rounded up. Because they were tracking the money. Tracking the money. The whole organization was dismantled as a result of the ransom payment. So it became a great way to take out a criminal organization that had been operating completely freely prior to that. And a rescue would have only taken out the bad guys on a platform. It would not have taken out the whole organization. They took the whole thing down, and these guys never resurfaced as an organization again. So going back to the magic words that you use as a negotiator, why is getting them to say no more important or better, much better, if I remember your words correctly, yeah. than yes? Yeah, it's, it's shocking. Um, and a friend of mine that I'm flattered that we're acquainted, Andrew Huberman, Huberman Labs podcast. Know him well. Amazing guy. Brilliant neuroscience stuff. Uh, met him for the first time recently. We're sitting down at lunch, and I'm like, all right, so I don't know what the neuroscience behind this is, but people feel safe and protected when they say no. They feel better. They're more likely to collaborate. And then plus we know- That's so weird. What, the other thing that's crazy that we know for sure is, like when you're exhausted mentally, you could still say no. Mm. But yes is hard. Yes is hard, or even as answering how. Like, if, if, you, uh, if, if you're tired, and one of my colleagues did this to me recently, and I could instantly tell the difference. They wanted to follow up with me when I was exhausted, and I knew that if they'd asked me, what are you thinking, what, great question, trigger deep thinking, I didn't have the mental gas in the tank to answer that question. But they answered me a question that was built around no, and I went boom, 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 boom. I laid it all out. And I was like, wow. I don't, I don't know how that happens. I just know it does. And we've seen time after time, if I need to close a deal at all, especially if I know that you're tired, instead of saying, do you agree? Do you want to do this? Are you in favor of this? I say, do you disagree? Is this a bad idea? Are you against this? Is this ridiculous? And you'll either go, no, let's do it. Or you go, no, but here are the problems. And you'll lay them all out for me. And feel no obligation, which means you're going to lay them out to me honestly. Like if I say, do you agree with this? You're going to afraid to say yes, but here are the problems because you feel that yes is an obligation. And you're going to be worried about digging yourself deeper in by saying anything after that. But having said no... You feel you have no obligation. I think it might be that simple. So you will, you will lay the rest of the stuff out, not being worried about digging yourself into a hole. It's really interesting that some part of our brain is tracking the, even though it's not like obviously a contract, but that some part of our brain is like, yeah, we've just agreed to that. And now I have a sense of obligation and they have the right to like take me to task on it. It's right. very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and we stumbled over that one by by accident, and it is just the the good and the bad about getting people to say no is it makes such a huge difference in all interactions that sometimes that's the only thing somebody learns. And we're like, look, there is so much more here. Like, I know you're making a lot more money now, and you're doing better than anybody that you see around you but you're not doing as good as you could be doing and you cannot stop there. But a lot of people, I see it all the time. They just learn how to trigger no instead of yes 
and they're instantly significantly more successful. And they quit there. They don't keep going. All right. What then, if you were going to bring this all together, if no is that first bit that shows people like, whoa, you can frame this in a new way. What are the, the few key tenets of like, all right, if you had to bestow quickly upon somebody what the core tenets of the black swan way are? Yeah, you know, let the other side go first. Um, and then, you know, the cliche, the other side's got to talk five times as much as you. Not twice as much, five times as much. It doesn't mean that you go, uh, that you go mute. You drop in occasionally. You let the other person know that whatever they're thinking is, it's okay to share it. Like, one of our favorite things, you got to have some go-to labels. Go-to labels? Yeah, label is one of our negotiation techniques. Seems like, sounds like, looks like, feels like. No matter what anybody says, you can say, seems like you had a reason for saying that. Like, no matter what they say, I hate you and everything you stand for. Seems like you got a reason for saying that. It's disarming. They'll talk with you about it. I want to do business with you, and I want to deal with you right now. Seems like I had a reason for saying that. Well, yeah, here's why I want to do business with you. Um, one, one of my son came up with, again, like, brilliant guy. We, you know, we would not be our team without him. Clients call on a phone, say, how are you today? How are you today is a diagnostic. They want to know if they could talk, if you're in a mood to talk about what they want to talk about. Brandon's response is, seems like you got something on your mind. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, because they've been, they've been planning this call. How are you today is not like genuinely how some people really want to know, but most people want to know, are you prepared to listen to what I have on my right. mind? How are you as a temperature check? Are you in a bad mood? Because I'm wasting my time. You're in a good right. mood? We could talk. And the, the only pushback he ever got on that was he had a guy say, yeah, you know, there's stuff I want to talk about. Really, I want to know how we are today. And so Brandon said, yeah, I'm good. You know, we talked about it, and then they got down to business. So, you know, it, the more you encourage the other side to talk, the more likely it is that you're going to get to this moment of collaboration quicker. Never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. How do you get something better? You get the other side to talk. You spend a lot less time talking and appreciate that they're bringing something to the table that you could use. The black swan, the tiny little thing is going to change everything. You trigger that, you're going to make great deals. That's it. That's We've it. got our, our basic principles. Remember, you don't get in life what's fair. You get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. When we talk about thought shaping questions, we're talking primarily what and how questions. These are our old calibrated questions. We used to use calibrated questions to gather information. We're moving away from that now and using the calibrated questions to provoke thought or to engage them in problem solving uh, collaboration. How are we gathering information now? We're not asking questions. We're using what we're referring to at this point as asking labels. Any question that you want to ask the other side, if you want to take um, offensiveness out of the question, you want it to feel less like an interrogation, 
take that uh, what or how question and turn it into a label simply by upward inflecting. It sounds like X is important to you as opposed to asking them what's important to you. And if you notice also, um, as of late, I've really become enamored with the word envision or vision. Uh, because when you talk about somebody's thought process, there's a mental movie that's playing in their vein, in their brain. There's always a vision of how they see things in the future. And it's a powerful word to get them to really use their imagination and engage their creativity. So I purposely insert the word envision or vision in to, um, into the thought shaping question as a way of review, you know, the last or this two slides ago, it was LMP label mirror paraphrase labeling is just used to identify driving forces and dynamics. Simply. It looks like it seems like it sounds like it looks like, or it feels like if you want to be more engaging, you look, you seem, you sound, etc. Um, Mirroring is just repeating back the last one to three words. A great way to have them continue on a thought process by just repeating back the last one to three words. Great for getting them to expound on a point or continuing the conversation tells them that you are attending and listening at the same time. You are present in the moment. Um, the, there's an age-old adage that a fool tries to convince me with his words, a wise man tries to convince me with my own. That's just what labeling does. There's no better way to demonstrate for the other side that you are listening to every word that comes out of their mouth than by repeating back the last one to three words. Brandon, what did you have? So a couple couple things here. Because um, when you put up the how question, it reminded me we do have something on the survey in regards to you know how, dealing with a boss that does not respond well to how questions. Like, what do you do if you've asked how questions and you don't get a response? Well, a couple things. First of all, if that is you and that's the situation you deal with, as Derek mentioned earlier, if you're going to ask how questions, you want those to be centered around vision. Because the reality is, especially if they're a boss, part of their job is to have the vision in their head. And so if you're asking how questions around the vision, it's going to be a little bit easier to tease that stuff out because the vision is ever present. Now, for your other how questions that you try to ask that you may not get a good response to, simply change those how questions to what. Right. If you've been asking how, how, how and you're not getting very far, take some time and turn all of those how questions into what questions. Now. It doesn't go into great detail in the survey, but part of the thing here is I would surmise that any boss that's got trouble dealing with how questions is probably tired of defining implementation for everyone that works for them. How do we make this work, boss? Well, with the first thought in your boss's head, especially if they're juggling a bunch of things at once, is that's why you're on the team. That's why I hired you to figure this out. And so Stop coming to me for all the how answers. Come up with some of them yourself. And so I would imagine that's probably some of what's getting in the way. It's probably not all of what's getting in the way, 
but that's probably some of it. And so instead of asking your boss, how do we define next steps or how do we move forward from here? Put your suggestions in simply what's wrong with these next steps. Instead of waiting for them to define it and them having to go through the mental process of, all right, let me lay out all these steps for you. You've probably got some steps in mind of your own. And so, you know, boss, what's wrong with this as our next steps? What problems do you see with tackling it this way? And that's a that's a really slight, a really a two millimeter shift on changing your how questions to what questions, especially when it when it deals with implementation. Yeah, and so the, and this is a point that Brandon just made because uh, I, I remember a couple of years ago I, we had an intern, and all he ever asked me was, "What do you want me to do? How do you want me to do it?" And that indicated to me no thought whatsoever. And finally, I told him after one o'clock in the afternoon, never ask me a how or what question ever again, because his his questions indicated no thought, and and a how or what question puts you in. Um, Danny Kahneman calls slow thinking or in-depth thinking, which is, is exhausting. It's exhausted to be asked that. But notice the elements of this question that Derek strung together in, in, this, in this question here. How do you envision? I mean, a thought-shaping question is designed to shape thought in the other side. And if that same intern, instead of asking me, how do you want me to handle this? If he'd have said, how do you envision we move forward? It would have triggered my thought pattern in a completely different way, and I could have laid out a couple of steps for him really quickly in that instance. So I, I love how this is the first time I've seen uh, this question constructed the way Derek's got it here. And as usual, I love I love the stuff that he puts together. This is a great question. It's a it's a how question. It starts with the word how, but there are components here that are designed to trigger specific thinking to shape thinking. And that's the difference between just a flat, how am I supposed to handle this, to how do you envision we move forward? There are elements in there that get the person's brain thinking the way you want them to think. That's perfect. That's that's a great ad. And so a couple things just in regards to the chat, because I know we got some questions around how do I remember this stuff? How do I recall it when I'm in game? Right? How do I recall what's in what we talked about today? Well, first thing is probably gonna want to review the recording. But as many people are saying here in the chat, you're just gonna, there's no way around low stakes practice. Practice on family. Practice, you know, and, and, and it's really every opportunity you get to speak to someone is an opportunity to try out one of these skills. And that's how you start committing it to memory so that when you get in the championship game, right, you get in that big interaction with your boss over an implementation of an issue, You've done this a bunch of times already in small conversations, and now it, it comes more naturally. Let's start with talking about mastering mastering the no. This is letting them hear no, letting them feel no, without actually saying the words no. And so for your best results, it's going to be tactical empathy on the front end and then however you're going to say no and we'll talk about the four phases of no in a, in a later session but you're letting them hear it letting them feel it without you actually saying it um ned ned coletti used to manage the dodgers back in the day and um 
he was famous for saying, I like to let out no a little bit at a time. And so we're going to talk about ways to actually push back against the other side without cornering themselves and without cornering you. Mastering their weaknesses, their weaknesses. Where do you think, where do you think the cutthroat's weakness lies? Not having control. That's one of them. They need to feel like they're in control. The assertive, the cutthroat negotiators are looked upon as some of the most difficult people to deal with in a difficult conversation and negotiation. From my perspective, they're the easiest because they want to feel like they're in control. And they want to feel like they got the best deal that they could. The operative word in both of those is feel. Yeah, Chris tells a story all the time about um, being in the international kidnapping market and the powers that be wanting to know when are they going to release when are they going to release the kidnapped victim? And Chris's standard response was when they feel like they've gotten everything that they could, when they feel like they got the best price possible. Doesn't mean that they actually end up with the best price possible. They just need to feel like they did. And, and so we're talking about feelings. And how stupid is that when you're talking about international kidnappers and terrorists? We're talking about how they, how they feel. And so our job is to make them feel in control as early as possible, using deference, using subordination. You may even want to say, you know, it's, it's, it's clear that you've got the upper hand here. It's clear that you're in control here. They'll eat it up. They'll, they'll eat it up. You try it one time when you, when you go into an area, a space in your organization where you don't have the same cachet as you do in your own, but you bring to the table a special knowledge or skill or ability that's going to help this other space improve their ability to do their job. And when you come in there, you're viewed as an interloper, you're viewed as an outsider. And so as a result, you'll likely get pushback for any idea, any suggestion that you make because it's not your area and you're encroaching. And the sooner you recognize that and defer to that, the more cooperation and, and um, non-obligatory buy-in you'll get from the other side. Why do we use the no-oriented question? We use the no-oriented question because it protects the autonomy of the other side. People know when you're driving them for a yes, and most of the time they resent it. The people on the globe are, yes, addicted and, yes, battered at the same time. We're seduced by the yes. When we hear it, we get all giddy inside. And um, when it's used against us, we resent it because it, we feel like our ability to say no has been encroached upon. But they're very effective at breaking them past, helping people to think clearly or getting them to respond to you when they've dropped off the face of the earth. Uh, some examples of no oriented questions appear on the right side of the screen. 
And these are all alternatives to the yes-oriented questions that are on the left side of the screen. Would it be ridiculous? Is it out of the question? Am I out of line? Would it be off-putting? Have you given up on? Are you against is also one that I like to use quite frequently. Are you against X? Chris, did you have something or are you spazzing? What happened to my favorite no answered question? Which is? Is it be ridiculous? Oh, is it be ridiculous? Yeah, we got rid of that. <laughs> Once we got you through grammar school, we felt it was no longer necessary to keep that up. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Um, so, yeah, that's any, any question where you're driving for, yes, a little bit of mental power can be changed to a no-oriented question. And I am continually amazed at what people will agree to by saying the word no that they would never agree to or say or say yes to. And, and this is not a heckle, but it's one more I want to throw because this is particularly in, in dealing with the bosses. Guys, we have counseled people to say to a boss, do you want me to fail? And it has broken impasse and uncovered answers and reoriented the negotiations. And no oriented questions originally started, the first trigger point on this came from a woman negotiating with her boss. And she ultimately completely got her way by starting with a no oriented question. So understand, do you want me to fail? Do you want this to fail? is a legitimate question to a boss who has given you an impossible task. The bad news if they've given you an impossible task, it's an impossible task in point of fact. The good news if they've given you an impossible task, they think a lot of you and they are looking for you to save the day. So no oriented questions with the bosses are very effective things. We, we look at this as basically it's a bear trap at the end of that rainbow if you're on the yes path. And so what's our alternative? Our alternative is no oriented questions. All of you that have read the book have seen this. You have some feel for it. And so real quick, I'm going to share a short story with you. Some of you may have even heard this on Chris's keynotes about dealing with Jack Welch. So Jack's in L.A. several years ago while Chris is living in the area. He and I at the time were actually teaching a negotiation course at the Marshall School of Business at USC for the, uh, the graduate program. He goes to a book signing to see Jack. Oh, and if you don't know who Jack Welch is, obviously he's an author. We're talking about Chris going to a book signing to get an author from him. But he was a huge businessman. He's not with us anymore, but he ran GE in the 80s and 90s, turned it into one of the fastest growing companies in the United States. He was actually named manager of the century in 1999, which I don't know if there's a higher accolade than that. And he, he developed this rank and yank system at GE and, and was also adopted in many other places in the corporate world, which essentially means you don't hit certain standards, you're gone. There is no second chance. You got a standard to meet. You don't get there. We're going to roll you out and bring in somebody that can't get the job done. So very big guy, philanthropist, author, a lot of people look up to him and, and, and follow his doctrines as a businessman, even still today. So Chris is at this signing. He wants to see if Jack will come teach at his class at USC. Now, if you know anything about book signings, you got about five seconds with the author. Security's job is to keep people moving through. 
Chris doesn't have time to have a full conversation with Jack, do an accusations audit, do a summary, label and mirror his responses. He doesn't have time to do any of that. He's got he's to do a quick hitter, and it's got to be emotionally intelligent, and he's got to do it now. And so he walks up to Jack, and if you've heard the story, you know that he says, is it ridiculous for you to come speak at my class at USC? And as the story goes, Jack gets a very intense look on his face, looks up and to the left and just kind of freezes with this very angry look. In that moment, Chris thinks to himself, I just killed Jack Welsh. He's an old guy and he's so angry at my question that he's actually having a stroke in front of me and he's gonna drop dead and security's gonna drag me out of here by my ankles and I'm going to jail. And after about 10 seconds of this intense look, Jack looks back at Chris and he says, here's a Twitter handle that's private that only people use internally in my company. My assistant actually runs this as me. I'm going to let her know that you're going to reach out to her through this Twitter handle so that we can keep in touch. And I think we're supposed to be back in L.A. in the fall. This is sometime in the spring of that year. He says, if we're back in L.A. at that time frame, I will come speak at your class at USC. Now, the long of it is, Jack wasn't in fact back in the fall, very busy guy, couldn't make it, so it didn't happen. However, he got the commitment in the moment. Why is that? Obviously the no-oriented question, but what happened? What happened in Jack Welsh's brain in that moment that made it so easy for him to answer? And the crazy thing about no-oriented questions, and I wish we could point to a specific brain science study that lays this out. Maybe there will be soon, right, with fMRI machines and this wonderful technology and being able to plug electrodes into people's brains. I'm sure there'll be a study at some point that explains how this works. What we've observed as negotiators, as content experts, as former hostage and crisis negotiators, when you allow someone to say no to you, and in fact, when you aim at someone saying no to you, it clears their thought process. As a lot of you have thrown into the chat some of the problems with yes, because yes makes people nervous, the instant reaction is, how do I defend myself in this moment? And that clutters up the brain. It doesn't allow us to be cognitively flexible when we're worried about how we have to defend ourselves. And so he confronted Jack over a very specific want, did it without a confrontational reaction, and cleared Jack's thought process to lay out the implementation of how it would work all at the same time with a very simple question. And so you can take our word for it or you can do what we're going to implore you to do as a result of this class and our next two. Go out and start executing this stuff if you're not already. If you are executing this stuff already, then you should start developing your go-to list. If you listen to anything we've talked about before, you know we talk a lot about go-to labels. The reality is when the heat is on, you fall to your highest level of preparation. And as a result of that, we like to have go-to lists of every single skill that we talk about. And we keep that stuff near to us, right? Laminate it, put it in your jacket pocket, 
make a list, put it on your desk. We even had a, a good client and now friend of ours sent us a picture of his office. And he had what we would refer to as situation boards set up in different frames all over his office that had lists of skills that he executes on a daily basis in his negotiations. So it's going to help you to have a cheat sheet. Cheat sheet never get beat. That's what we like to say. And so that should apply to the Norrington questions as well. As you can see on the slide here, on the left, we have our classic yes questions. On the right, we have our classic versions of how to begin a no into questions. Would it be impossible? Is it a bad idea? Am I out of line? Is it, would it be out of the question? And so what I'm going to ask from you now, here's a chance to get some more coaching from Sandy. This slide is, an, is, is a more extensive list of classic yes questions that everybody asks. I'm guilty of asking them in the past. People on our team were even guilty of asking these things in the past. And so pick one or two of the questions off this list and please translate it to a no-oriented question in the chat. And the other thing about this, this is actually a fairly decent prep model. Any yes question can easily be translated to a no question. A good way to do it 10, 15 minutes before you walk into a negotiation, you want to work on your no-oriented questions. Take a piece of paper, draw a line down the center. On the left, add, put the questions that you would normally want to say, have them say yes to. Don't you agree that this is going to help your company? Don't you want to sign this contract? Don't you want to move forward so we don't waste any more time? Whatever. Draw that line, and on the right, just simply put the no-oriented translation of what that is. And that's a really good way to start getting yourself acclimated, starting to develop your go-to list, as it were. And so last thing I want to mention about this, something we highlight in the book, but it's not laid out here in the slides, is simply the no-oriented question that's phrased, are you against? And this if you're in any sort of sales role, maybe sales isn't necessarily attached to your title, but there is a sales element to what you do. And for all intents and purposes, we're always selling ourselves, right? I mean, we all know that inherently. And so this are you against has actually shown to be a tremendous closer in the sales world or the closing world, right? However you like to look at it. And simply, are you against moving forward? You've gotten all the way through the conversation, the value's been established, the rapport has been established, and you still seem to be at impasse. That's a great question for that moment, and it's yielded tremendous results. And so we wanna offer that to you and allow you to start using it too. So please feel free, get your list started, get your go-tos going, and you're gonna find yourself in a much better place. Jack Welch author of Jack and Winning, alongside his, with his wife, Susie. They're coming through uh, Los Angeles a couple of years ago. They're, they're, they're hustling their book, The Real Life MBA. I go to the book signing Jack Welch is at. I want him to come speak to the negotiation course I'm teaching at the time at USC. How many people try to get Jack Welch to say yes to something at that book signing? 
Pretty much every one of them, right? They're going to come up there, Jack, how are you? My, yeah, my kid makes, my wife makes a great meatloaf. You want to come to the house tonight? God knows what they're going to ask him. Jack, I got this invention. Would you pose with it? How many people are going to ask him to try to say yes? That day, that week, how many people try to get Jack Welch to say yes to something? You or me, you come up to Jack Welch, what do you say? And how much time do you have? You maybe got seven seconds. And even if you get to the second response after him, there's 300 people standing behind you in line. They walk you up there. Before you get to them, they say, what's your name? Chris, write on a piece of paper so Jack doesn't get it wrong. Really, that's so you don't, so you don't talk to him. And then you keep moving. On top of that, have they patted me down? Do they know whether or not I've got a gun? Have I been through a metal detector? As a matter of fact, I do have a gun, but he's not in trouble for me. They don't have my identification. They don't know I'm not going to hurt him. I'm going to get within arm's length of Jack Welch. Action is quicker than reaction. They can't stop me from doing anything I want to do. This is, this is the dilemma of bodyguards. You get within arm's length of the target, you can only stop them after they've done it. You can grab them after they've killed your target, but you can't stop them. I'm, I'm going to get within arm's length of Jack Welch. They, I could do whatever I want. I could walk up to him and kiss him right on the lips if I want to, right? <laughs> He was falling asleep. I want to make sure he's wake up. <laughs> he's going to wake up screaming in the middle of the night time. <laughs> I walk up to Jack Welch, and this is what I say to him. Is it a ridiculous idea for you to come and speak at the negotiation course that I teach at USC? He looks up and to the left, and gives this really intense scowl on his face. And it just freezes. And I think to myself, I just killed Jack Welch. <laughs> he had a stroke. He's so furious. And he's going to die. And the security's going to tackle me. They're going to drag me on cuffs. And I'm going to say, but I'm an FBI agent. Go, we don't care. He killed Jack Welch. So initially, when he doesn't die, I'm relieved. But he still doesn't move. But finally, he unfreezes. And he looks at me and he says, this is my personal assistant's name. This is a special Twitter account we have set up to co communicate with her. I will call her and tell her who you are and what you want. I think we're going to be in Los Angeles in the fall. If we are, we'll come in and speak at your class. Calibrated no is worth at least five yeses. So essentially what you're going to do when you're doing no-oriented questions is you're going to make no work for you. Okay, you're going to get them to give you a yes, but they're actually going to be able to say no. Yes, when you're, when you're going for a yes from somebody and you're constantly trying to get them to say yes, you're taking away their autonomy. And when someone says yes, sometimes it seems like a trap to them. It also seems like no matter what the question is, if they say yes, it's some kind of a commitment that they might not be ready to get into. So instead, ask them a question that they can answer no to, but it actually means yes to you. Because saying no makes people feel protected, makes them feel safe, makes them feel like they still have all their cards hidden, and they just feel better about it. So if you put that question um, in a way that allows them to be negative, it works out better for you. Also, when you're constantly asking questions that you want a yes answer to, you look like that demanding mother who says, did you clean your room? Did you do the dishes? Did you do this? Did you, did you make your bed? Because, you know, everyone heard that from mom growing up, right? Yeah, and you're like, yes, 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 yes. And it's just like so annoying. So no one wants to be equated to the demanding mom. So instead, 
you can say, would it be impossible for you to make a copy of this for me? And they're going to want to say no, because maybe they don't want to make the copy. I don't know, but they're going to say no. But is it going to mean no? It's gonna, no, it's going to mean yes to you because of the way you phrase the question. So it's really kind of magical how this works. Um, essentially, you are demonstrating concern for what this ask, what the impact that ask is going to have on that person. Because, you know, when you're asking someone to go run an errand for you, ooh, would it be impossible for you to run to the store and get this for me? Okay, you're, you're saying, yeah, by my tone of voice, I'm letting you know that I know this might be inconvenient for you, but would it be impossible for you to just do this for me? Proper tone is important. Um, Davey, take the next one. Sets of the powerful feeling of graciousness. You're better at this one than I am. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, because you can use the, I mean, there are a few phrases that are really go-to for an oriented questions. So would it be impossible to, would it be ridiculous? Would it be um, out of the question? Like those are three really good go-tos. Um, if you want to make it a little bit more specific. So for example, like, um, say that you have to move a meeting, like this happens to me a lot, right? Um, then you say, would it throw off your whole, like, I know you're already busy, would it throw off your whole schedule if we move this meeting? So it's, it's almost this opportunity, again, to express understanding, to express like, hey, I know you're busy, this might throw everything off. So you can even phrase the question in that way, right? Or something I really like to do is, would it be really difficult to? Or would it be bothersome to? So like you can use whatever you think like, well, they might feel like this is annoying or they might feel like um, this is going to be really problematic for them. And so then you say that in the in that knowing question. It's almost like a way that you can kind of address whatever it is that they're going to feel within the oriented question essentially so it makes it feel kind of gracious because you've thought about this you've thought about how is this going to impact you instead of just making an ask and making sure they do it you're thinking about okay this is going to impact this person in in this way mm -hmm. and you express that and then they're even more likely to want to do what you're asking essentially it also, depending on the kind of question that you're asking and some of the things that Davey was just saying kind of fall under this, makes the other side feel like the decision to do the action was theirs. So if you, and you can double whammy them with an accusations audit, um, yeah, you may think I'm, I'm being so irresponsible with my time and my schedule. Would it be impossible or would it put you in a bad position if we could move the meeting to three o'clock? And then... They're going to say, oh, no, no, it's okay. We, we can move me. It's going to feel like the decision was theirs because you, you basically asked that question <clears throat> in a way that it feels like they can decide whether or not they can make the movement. But because it was kind of geared at a no-oriented question, it makes them feel like they were nice enough to take that action for you and it was their decision. Yeah, okay, like so the ball was in their court. They're doing this for you. Yes. And it, it that lets is, them feel like they're being nice. Exactly. And that is huge when you're talking about um, where you stand psychologically with somebody. Because the more you make somebody feel like they are in control, the better they feel, even when they're not in control, because you know you're asking the questions in such a way that you are literally in control, but you're letting them feel like they have the control. Um, so that, that does do something for people in their brains. So it's just something to really keep you know, in the forefront of your mind, when you're about to ask someone a yes question that you want a yes to, take two seconds 
to frame it so that they can say no, but still mean yes to you. Yeah, exactly. Then they feel like they're the ones that are, that they're maintaining power, essentially. Yes, because no is a powerful thing to be able to say to someone. The phases of no, or what we like to refer to, as you see down there in the bottom right, letting no out slowly. We've all seen how am I supposed to do that in the book. We do not explicitly lay out what the phases of no are in the book. Partially because this wasn't a fully explored skill from all angles when the book was written, right? We had all this great content. We wanted to get it out to the world, and that's what we had. We've continued to develop and grow, just like everybody should. And so one of the biggest things we found from people that have read the book is there are varying degrees of outcomes to the response. How am I supposed to do that? For some of you, maybe you're still batting a thousand. Every time you say, how am I supposed to do that? You get exactly what you want. They, uh, they fix it and you move forward. I'm sure in some cases on the other extreme, you've maybe never had the success you thought you'd have with how am I supposed to do that? And you've had varying responses, including they tell you how to do it. Well, how am I supposed to do that? Well, this is how you do it. You get these people together and you, and you line them up in this way and you do these things and it should take you about a week to accomplish, right? They actually give you an answer on how we're supposed to do that and now you feel stuck. And so, or you're somewhere in the middle, right? You're either on the ends or you're somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. You've already figured this out as we've worked our way through today. Why is that? Because in the book, it doesn't talk about using an accusations audit to deliver your ask. How am I supposed to do that? Is not only an ask, it's an assertive ask. And so it's even more paramount that an accusations audit come before it. In the book, accusations and audits were used by Chris before he dropped this line in at the car dealership with the dealer. We just didn't call out the skill specifically. But if you remember the story, he would constantly say things like, you've been so generous. I can't believe how much work you've put into this. You spent a bunch of time with me today. I really appreciate all the effort and, and time you've given me. I can't believe, you know, and, and the car, the car is worth more than what I'm asking for. It's, pro it's probably worth more than what you guys listed it at. How am I supposed to do that? That was the accusations audit. Generosity and time don't seem like negatives. Why does that apply in this case? Because it's based on their perspective. And the negative that we are attacking is if we don't recognize how generous they've been, they're immediately going to start to remove themselves because you have the audacity not to even see how much time I put into this. And that's when it becomes a negative. Their perspective, how can you not see how hard I'm working to get this done? I would consider myself generous to even still be entertaining this interaction with you. And so calling them generous in the accusations audit is actually directly resulting in what the negative that exists is causing what friction is there. And so another part of this that you should be well aware of, and another reason we've had varying degrees of success across the board, this is not a sequential move game. How am I supposed to do that should be delivered at least twice 
if not three times before you move forward in the conversation. Why is that? Well, first of all, since it's a question, it's also a thought pattern interrupt. And if they got momentum going, angry or not, doesn't matter, but if they got mental momentum, mental momentum, right, uh, moving forward, chances are the first time you throw a thought pattern interrupt at them, they're not going to be able to process it. Like they, it literally just won't penetrate the cranium because the wheels are spinning. And so part of the reason to go back to it again is because they're going to hear it differently the second time after the wheels have started to slow down. And then you may need to go three because when they finally do hear it and they give you an answer, it might be, well, because you got to do this because I said so. And you throw it at them a third time to really and emphatically put your foot down on the implication of that is not going to work with me, work for me. You got to come up with a different, better solution if we're going to continue forward. And that's the intention behind everything that comes on the third delivery without having to actually verbalize it. And then you move through the list. After you've done it three times, then your fourth move is, I'm sorry, I just don't know how I can do that. Fifth is that's not going to work for me. And finally, your sixth is the flat out no. I will tell you up to this point, we don't actually know anyone that got all the way to no. Does it mean it can't happen? Over the past 12 years, it hasn't yet. But, you know, it's obviously a possibility. And so that's how you sequence it out. Again, tone is going to be important every time you deliver. Emphasis on the I and how am I supposed to do that is one way to deliver it late night fm dj use an accusations audit before every single delivery if you put any one of these skills out there completely naked the chances that it's going to backfire on you in the moment is that much higher we get so hung up because at the end of the day what was chris telling you each of the role plays what was he telling you no Right? He was telling you no. It was in a different form, car in 60 seconds or she dies. But he was telling you no. Anytime somebody tells you no, they're telling you what? What's behind the no? When somebody gives you pushback, when somebody says do this or else, cut your price, I'm going to a competitor. Take this clause out of the contract or we're not gonna sign. Change your delivery date. Give me a raise or I'm going to another company. What are they really telling you? Now we got a hand back here. But they're still negotiating. Yes, but they're pushing back. Why are they pushing back? What are they telling you with the pushback? No. They don't trust you or they're afraid of something. We get so wrapped around the axle on the demand. I want a car in 60 seconds. What's behind that? What is he telling you? I want to get out of Which tells you what? Which tells you what? He wants to get out, he's afraid. You're on the right track, just take it far. Go deeper, as they say. As Brandon says, go deeper. Hey, Isaac's the one who gives you crap over that, not me. <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing a lot of things. Say it again? I say he doesn't have a plan. No, I think, I think you're back here. He wants to live. He wants who said to that? live. Raise your hand. That's it. That's exactly it. There's a motivation behind every pushback, every no. 
and it usually has to do with trust, usually have to, has to do with fear. There's another motive. When, 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 the, when Chechen terrorists marched into that school in 2004 in Beslan, Russia, one of the first two demands on their list was, we want Putin to resign, and we want Russian boots off of Chechen soil. Show of hands, how many think that would ever happen? And so the powers that be said, it's never going to happen. This is non-negotiable. We can't negotiate this. What are they saying behind that? Russian boots off of Chechen soil, and Putin has to resign. What are they saying behind it? What? Uh, if you he carry it to its to die for willing it, to die, I'm sorry. Yes, he said they're willing to die for it. If you carry it to its logical extension, based on their history, probably. But what is the message behind? Yeah, their sovereignty and freedom has been encroached upon. That's what we're going to talk about. The fact that they said, take it out of the contract or we're not going to sign, I don't care about that. I want to know what makes them say that. Why are they afraid to sign? What is their environment looks like that's clouding their vision? And so, don't get hung up on the fact that they've issued a threat or they issued a demand, you take it, you process it, and then you start to attack what's propping that up, what's supporting it. And at the primal level, it's fear or it's mistrust. Did you want to add? Brandon. Uh, very good. And yeah, just to kind of add to more of that, how do you get to the why without asking the why? Short answer is labels. And then to go even further than that, labeling the underlying dynamic. Need a car in 60 seconds or she dies? Sounds like you want to live. Circum uh, situation, the circumstance and the situation drive your strategy. When people are barricaded suspects, are they always looking to make it out alive? No. So the fact that they're asking for a car and a way of escape at the beginning is a really good sign. Part of the why that that tells you right away is they want to live. And then how do we get to more of the why? Sounds like you got a reason for doing this. Sounds like you got a good reason, a good justified reason for why you got up this morning and decided to take all these people hostage. What, what, what he said was, and this would be on your go-to labels list, especially as a last-ditch effort. It sounds like there's nothing I can say to change your mind. And again, uh, mastery's in tonality, but also to his point, as business people, part of our job is qualifying our clients. And so if you know that you're with somebody that is taking that line with you, the other question you should be asking yourself is, do I want to do business with this schmuck for the next five years? Or is it actually easier for me to cut my losses and focus my time on something else? That's one of the great things. That's one of the great things about having autonomy as a business person. You get to make that decision. And so if you know you're dealing with someone who is stuck on that one-track mind, you can take the route of, all right, we'll come to an agreement. I don't mind playing the game as long as I know what the rules are. Or you can say, yeah, this is a fucking waste of my time. I've been working with this guy. He's, he clearly seems to recognize some sort of loss, but he's stuck. His pride and ego is too stuck to this number, and he just doesn't have the ability to think this through right now, which happens, because that sounds like you're dealing with an assertive, and assertors are one-track mind people sometimes. They get tunnel vision because they're so focused on a goal, and there ain't nothing that's going to penetrate that thought process until they got a couple of nights to sleep on it. 
And so, how are you man? Again, emotional moments, right? How are you managing it? And then, do you want to do business with that person? All right, three three ways to make no work for you, right? That's that's where we're at here today. On our blog post article, uh, if you want to read the article, it's um, it is communication skills: three ways to make no work for you. I'm going to skip past the first two to one of my favorites. Ask the question: Would it be horrible if we sat in this section? Now, one of the things that I love about this particular story uh, is I was at a conference and Walter O'Brien was speaking. Walter O'Brien is a scorpion. Uh, Walter's claim, and I have no contradictory evidence to counter that claim, that he's got the highest IQ ever recorded. There was a television show called, I think it was called The Scorpion. Uh, a long time ago, uh, supposed to be inspired by Walter O'Brien's real life, where he and his team of super smart people solve the world's problems, would come to your rescue. And so we're at this conference, and Walter's there, and Walter is a ridiculously smart dude. I've, you know, I've run across him a couple of times. We're at his restaurant, and they got this, there's nowhere to sit, and they got this section blocked off. And so somebody got to talk to him and get the waitress to let us sit in a blocked off section. Now, fortunately for me, I watched Walter walk over there and talk to the waitress, and she's like, no, you can't sit here. You can't sit here. And, you know, he tries to use IQ on her because he's got a super high IQ. And, and, and the answer is no. So I walk up to her, and I said, would it be horrible if we sat in this section? She looks around. She goes like, no, you just got to be out here by 6 o'clock. That's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We just want to sit down and have a drink. You know, we don't want to be there for hours and hours. I cut the deal, and we go right in, and we sit down. So to my particular delight, the hostage negotiator succeeded where the world's smartest guy failed. So, Walter, if you're listening to this, I'd probably owe you a drink or a steak or something for telling that story on you. But it's a, a great example of why in all of our ways to make no work for you that People are comfortable saying no. People get into this no mode. One of the biggest surprises that I took really to heart in the book was getting to know first. Where we're so wired, I mean, we're completely wired for the opposite. For example, on a recruiting call, if I call a typical agent, you know, who doesn't know who I am, I may say, hey, you know, Chris, this is Alex Vidal with Related IG, blah, blah, blah. How are you doing today? By the way, I see you're a great agent. I was calling to see if you would be interested in learning more about my company. And the typical answer is, no, I'm happy where I'm at. It's a 30-second call. Right. I read your book. I sit down with my leadership team. And I say, guys, I want to try something different. Just, ha- just hang out. I'm going to put it on speaker. So I call Chris. And now Chris answers the phone. And I say, hey, Chris, this is Alex Vidal with Related as International Realty. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm like, oh, man, I'm doing great. I already know you're a great agent. Just the fact that you even picked up your phone to begin with. And they start laughing, you know, because realtors in South Florida never answer their phone. So then I follow it up and go, let me ask you a question. Do you want to make less money this year than you did last year? And they say, no. And I'm like, no? No, of course not. Of course I want to make more money this year than I did last year. Oh, it sounds like you want to make this your best year ever. I do. Well, that's why I was calling. I want to show you how my brokerage can help make that happen for you. And I got the no right away. And then you got the no out of the way. And then I followed it up with, you know, the, the mirroring and the labeling and all that. And it was very interesting. My average recruiting call went from 30 seconds 
to 10 minutes. Wow. And just using that opening line, and I don't care, I'll share it with my competitors. I, I really, it doesn't really bother me. They're just spewing out information, literally using the mirroring and the labeling. What is it about people's need to want to say no? And what are the benefits of getting that no out of the way first? Yeah, you know, um, we're conditioned. There's some conditioning out there that, that we got to recognize. It's just true. Yep. So we've gotten conditioned that every time we say yes, somebody's trying to lead us into a trap. Somebody's trying to get us to say yes. You know, the uh, momentum selling says each yes is a tie down. A tie down takes away our autonomy, a basic human driver of what we are as human beings. Not what we are as males or females, not what we are as Westerners, as human beings. And this is about human wiring. You can't point to a, a civilization in the history of mankind that was content as slaves. It's driven us since we crawled out of the swamps. So these tie downs take away our autonomy and immediately begin to diminish rapport as we take away somebody's autonomy. And so we begin conditioned that if somebody's trying to get us to say yes, we're under attack. We've also conditioned ourselves is when we say no, we've just protected ourselves. We've just done something to preserve our autonomy. We're safer every time we say no, which is why so many people's default answer is no, not because they thought it through, but they've conditioned themselves, which means they feel safe when they say no. There's a neurochemical response. Sure. The chemicals that you feel when you say no make you feel safe and secure. Consequently, you're more willing to listen. Your guard's not up. You've protected yourself. So you start out with that question right away where somebody says no. Then they've just gotten a hit of all the chemicals that make them feel safe. And now they're willing to talk to you. And then you've got a, you've got a, your, uh, your follow-on moves are all designed to make them feel heard. Like you're interacting with them instead of against them. I mean, it sounds like you'd like to make more money. That was based on their response. You instantly prepare yourself to go into a collaborative conversation. Again, they're not threatened. They're not being attacked. They're not under siege. And now it's, it's, I'm not the least bit surprised that you're going from 30-second calls to 10-minute calls because as soon as you preserve the other side's autonomy, now they can talk to you candidly. Plus, you're different than all the other bozos out there that are trying to get them to say yes. That's it. And, and you know, the, the, the typical answer is, well, I'm happy where I'm at. Oh, it sounds like they take really good care of you. Yeah, they do. Awesome. What is it that they, they take? You know, maybe I can learn something about I can do in my company. What is it that they do to take care of you? And then you start finding all these holes and then the wall just keeps coming down. We had a conversion rate of 75% from calls to appointments. It was, it was un, unbelievable. And that's why I believe so much in the book. I, I read a lot of books, but very few make an, a direct, immediate impact the way, the way yours did. Just cu curious, um, all right, so you got to a conversion rate of 75%. What, what roughly were you doing before that? Oh, probably we would get maybe one out of maybe every six seven eight calls maybe we'd get an appointment wow and then those appointments had to show up the, the fact was not only were we at a 75 percent conversion rate but the, the bond that we had created with those people during that phone call was so good that they actually showed up for the appointment versus and it, i don't even have questions about the yeses but we you know you talk about in your book the three types of yeses that we get uh, that we typically get um and so by spending 10 minutes on the phone with them we, we actually get the approval 
action-based yes that moves the, the ball forward not just something to get us off the phone interesting i guarantee you there are very few people who are using proof of life questions there are very few people who are using no oriented questions and there are tons of people who are enamored with yes and we'll talk about why that's problematic um i often get asked how did you get hostage takers to say yes to you and the answer was we never did yes is a useless word it does you no good it's one of the it's one of the hurdles that you're going to have to navigate in order for you to improve the way you communicate between people there's this nonsense out there called yes momentum in, in academia they call it mere agreement with which suggests that you're likely to get an agreement to a big ask if there have been micro agreements previous to the ask. Example, uh, do you like clean water? Do you think people who abuse animals should be held to higher account? Do you think the women's national team should get paid as much as the men's national team? Buy my product. The yeses that precede the big ask, they say, doesn't even have to be related to the ask itself. Some people refer to it as the yesable proposition or my favorite, the yes tie down. Think about that for a second. Someone is trying to Use yes to tie you down and you like that or, or the other side of the coin, you're using yes to tie someone else down and, and you like that. Yes is commitment. Yes encroaches this encroaches on autonomy. Yes makes people defensive, their anxiety goes up. Um, people will cite studies where yesable propositions, mere agreement, yes momentum work. And I'm not here to say that it doesn't work. I'm just here to say if you're using it, your batting average is not as high as it should be. Yes is a lure, it's a hack, it's seductive. We know how good it sounds. And in that moment, we fail to recognize that we have put the other side on the defensive. So we got to get out of the habit. Think about it like this. How do you feel when the phone rings and the person on the other side, I don't care if they're close to you or not. They ask you, do you have a few minutes to talk? Most of you don't think to yourselves, oh my God, yes, I do have a few minutes. I'm glad you called. Four things usually run, uh, uh, run through your brain almost simultaneously. First, 
How long is a few minutes? Second, if I have a few minutes to talk, do I want to talk to you? Third, if I want to talk to you, do I want to talk about what you want to talk about? And fourth, how can I get off the phone? We have been hammered with yes, yes. We know, we feel it instinctively when people are trying to drive us somewhere, when people are trying to commit us to something and we resent it. We don't like committing to something that we haven't volunteered for. And so instead of a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, it's usually set up for a trap. We love to hear it so much, but in that instance, we should know that we're putting the other side on the defensive. 